Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I am your host, Joe Devine, and today I am joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello. And uh, Alex Stewart. Hello. Everyone's well. Let's discuss Brighton. Uh, we've promised to do this for the last few weeks. Uh, one thing or another has gotten our way, uh, but we're here now and uh, Brighton are still here also. Seb, a few weeks ago on a podcast related to another club, you said that your money was on Brighton to go down due to their run-in, which, let's be honest, is complicated still. However, in the intermittent time, you feel that Cardiff haven't done quite well enough to uh, maybe see that as a possibility now? No, I think I think the, um, the, 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 the moment when it might have changed is when Cardiff were one up against Chelsea and then uh, Cesar's Piquetta got that offside goal. And just it just seems to take so much air out of Cardiff's balloon that I just... I don't know. I, it's not that I necessarily think that Brighton will deal with their running any better. I just don't really see. Um, first of all, I don't see Cardiff beating Brighton in Brighton. And then I don't see Cardiff um, taking enough points from those games and their remaining games to close the gap. So that's the big fixture, isn't it? The 16th, I think, is, is Cardiff away yeah, at Brighton. Yeah, yeah. Cardiff come to the Amex that day. And I, I think um, I can't see Brighton getting any, any less than a draw from that. Um, so that should probably be enough. Okay, well, we're looking at Cardiff's um, other fixtures as well. They're away at Burnley. Yeah. They are then away at Brighton. They're at home to Liverpool. They're away at Fulham. They've got a rescheduled one against Bournemouth as well at home, and Bournemouth are in an absolute cataclysm at the moment. Right. So that should be a reasonable three points for them. They're also at home to Crystal Palace, and on the final day of the season, they are away to Manchester United. So they haven't got the easiest run in either. So you know, be. Yeah, beware of um, beware of the uh, the the relegated sides. Like going away to Fulham a couple of weeks ago, yeah, you, you'd expect to take something from that. With all this stuff around relegation settled, and you know, sort of next season, nerves out coming, of the way. Well, not just nerves, but also like it it, it gives it, it historically it sometimes it creates a little bit of an upswing because teams start looking towards next season. Players having been despondent for seven months suddenly think, oh, I'm playing for my future. And they're a little bit unpredictable, so you never know. Brighton is not um is not a certain three points. Oh, sorry, Fulham is not a certain three three points for Cardiff. So uh-huh. yeah, it's a difficult one. Okay, well let's also have a quick look at Brighton's uh, fixtures before we carry on with the show. They are at home to uh, AFC Bournemouth this weekend. Of course, at home to Cardiff City next week. Uh, away to Wolves, that's a tough one. Away to Tottenham, that's a tough one. Home to Newcastle, that's a tough one. In May, they are then away to Arsenal, that's a tough one home to Manchester City on the final day of the season. That is also a tough one. I mean, it doesn't inspire confidence looking at those fixtures, does it? So I'm pleased to hear that you are confident on the case of Brighton fans that they're staying up. I I, I think it's less about Brighton at this point and more about Cardiff. I don't don't see them closing the gap. I I think, yes. Because where do you see Brighton getting points out of their remaining fixtures here? Uh, Against Cardiff? Against Cardiff. And that will be the one that they have to win. And that's the key. And that's probably it. Yeah, I mean, Bournemouth like Alex said, are in all kinds of issues. Even their managers come out over the weekend to say, sort of, we've got an identity crisis, which is not not a heartening thing to hear from uh, from Eddie Howe. Particularly at Bournemouth, which is a club that seems to have forged a really strong identity of late. with with them. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Very strange. But it's... um, I mean, I, I, on the train up, I actually, I looked at the league table and it's, it's interesting how you can, how these things can go overlooked. Like you see where, where Bournemouth actually are on the league table. Yeah. It seems like maybe a month or two ago, they were all talking about, oh, aren't they great? And, you know, if Pochettino leaves and goes to Manchester United, which is obviously not happening now, Eddie Hauser, you know, a really good candidate for, to, to go and marry Spurs and you think, yeah, it's kind of there's this familiar pattern. Yeah, of, I feel of, like we've been through this cycle before. It feels like it, doesn't it? It feels yeah. very familiar. Um, so. 
yeah, I um, I I think Brighton have a have a, a good shot at get, getting something at Bournemouth. How long has Chris Hutton been in the job? Oh, since two thousand and fourteen, December thirty first. You say it like we just looked it up seconds ago, but we didn't. The reason I ask is because uh, you know, the last time I, I remember seeing Chris Hutton on a regular basis was uh, when he was Norwich manager. Took Norwich down. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a, a bad manager for Norwich, but he did take Norwich down, and it always the feeling always was. And you know, to be fair, with Norwich, kind of was until recently uh, that uh, they were a sort of stodgy defensive club. I associate that in my mind with Chris Hutton. Do we are we seeing a similar thing with? I mean, look, if he manages to keep Brighton up, then that's something surpassing his job last time. But do we see the same sort of thing with Brighton? Are Brighton fans happy with Chris Hutton? Five years, a long time to be in the job, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, that's really for them to say. What, I mean, what what I say is, I wouldn't use a word like stodgy. I think what I think what undid Hutton at Norwich was kind of. He initially succeeded and it was almost as if he felt like, right, well, I can't be a defensive manager. I can't be someone that's sort of um, led by organization. I have mm. to evolve. And Norwich kind of unraveled in that, in that, in that season. Yeah. Um, well, they would, they would, I remember them being very immobile. Yeah, very much so. But I, mean, I remember some of their, some of their signings and you thought, yeah, I, I think the season they went down was a season after they signed Nathan Redmond and they started to kind of upgrade the attacking positions on their side. Um, and Brian, I, I, there's certainly enough to suggest that he's learned that lesson. I mean, they um, there was obviously a bit of activity last summer, and you know, a lot of those signings were aimed towards um, becoming a little bit more progressive in the in the final third. But I, I still think of Brighton, I don't think they've lost any of their that kind of imperative. They are still first and foremost an organised world drill side who are going to um, survive or fail based on how well they defend. Um, right. So. I, so no, to be to be reductive and shrink it down to sort of footballing cliches yeah. to, to the person who hasn't watched Brighton all season, how do you describe them in a sentence? Uh, oh, I had to be negative, but they are a little bit limited. Yeah. Last time I saw them in person was at Stamford Bridge, and you know what? They, they actually played really well for about an hour. Um, Chelsea scored a couple of really nice goals, which kind of flattered them. Chelsea didn't play particularly well, but um, Brighton did a really fine job of blocking up the centre of the pitch and limiting supply to. Um, to, to the nine also Hazard wasn't particularly impactful until he scored uh, <laughs> but I mean, the, the point remains is that they play well where they came into difficulty was when when they had to had, had to sort of move out of there had to come out of their shell yeah. so when they actually had to um, find a goal you saw their limitations and they're kind of I, I think they, they they had their first shot late enough in the second half that they're kind of their fans chanted about it in kind of ironic celebration mm which isn't necessarily a good sign. Look, losing Stafford Bridge, there's no, there's no shame in that, but it's just, it was one of those kind of, you don't carry quite enough of a threat. Um, it will probably be enough to survive the season. It won't matter. Yeah. Glenn Murray's done a really fine job given how old he is, mm. but there needs to be a little bit more. They need, you need to carry a little bit more of a punch. Um, which... tell, tell me I'm wrong. Glenn Murray is the more mobile Grant Holt. Uh, I think Murray is a slightly cleverer player than Grant Holt. I see Holt. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe this is a recency bias. I remember Holt being a bit more of a batting ram. Sure. Um, he was smart though. He was smart, but he was like a bowling ball. Yes, um, he was like a bowling ball. Whereas Murray, Murray is <laughs> not the world's most technical footballer, but his movement is is pretty smart. His good finisher. Um, he is a good finisher. He is a he is a surprisingly good finisher because actually on first glance when you watch his goals he has a there's a scruffiness to it mm-hmm. but then when you look watch back you think actually he's done that or like think of um his his goal against Manchester United um right at the beginning of the season um at the Amex when he kind of he he kind of dug the ball over De Gea it's not something you necessarily associate with Glenn Murray but 
you know, uh, I think he's a good player. He's, 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 he's probably past his athletic prime and he, he doesn't <laughs> move like a natural athlete. But you know what, like to be, to be where he is now, to be making, you know, without his goals, Brighton would not still be mm. in the Premier League. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing to be able to say but about the, someone who's older than me. Their next highest scorer this season is Shane Duffy, who right. basically scores headers from set pieces. So, mm. you know, they are, they are limited in How that regard. How many goals he got this season? 11? No. Glenn Murray. 11 yeah. in the 11, league. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great return for, for someone in his mid-30s. Did you know that uh, Grant Holt is doing a, a, a wrestling event at, at Carrow Road in the, in the summer. I didn't know Grant Holt would become a wrestler. <laughs> it's, it's called like a, he's not, he hasn't, he's just a, you know that film that came out recently, the Stephen Merchant film with the, the WWE wrestler, um, she came from Norwich. Yes, I do know that. Uh, yeah. I don't know, it feels to me like it might be in some way connected to that, or maybe it's completely not, but Grant Holt is doing some kind of wrestling thing, which if you're in the, in the Norfolk area, I, would, yeah. I saw the posters this weekend at Carrow Road and it looks quite funny. Sorry, before we start recording, Joe said he, he's going on holiday to Spain, in inverted commas. Is this your way of really telling us that you're, you're going to watch professional <laughs> wrestling right. featuring Grant yeah. Holt for a week? I'm not actually going to Spain. I'm going, yeah, I'm going to gonna hang out with Grant Holt and I'm going to wash his back after the... Uh, that is After the wrestling match. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, it seems like I've prepared for a, a different podcast, doesn't it? But uh, Alex, could you tell me a little bit about how Brighton play as a team? I mean, we've heard a little bit from Seb, though. We've had, we've had a, a, the dinner plates down, but please uh, garnish it with uh, some, <laughs> some food. <laughs> That's a very weird analogy. Um, yes, the food, the food in this instance is probably like just a a pie and some mash. Right. It's, it is, I, that's one of my favourite meals. Okay. Vegetarian, then, then of course. maybe you would enjoy watching Brighton and Hope Albion Football Club. Um, it's, yeah, like Seb says, it's limited. It's not, and that, that isn't, I think, I think people can, can take that as a sign of disrespect. And there was, there was perhaps an inference when we did the Newcastle Tactics video recently again, uh, where talking about a side as being organized, being direct, it sounds like a criticism. It's not a criticism. If it is the most sensible deployment of the resources you have available and, you know, with, with Brighton, I think they've, they've been unfortunate this season that Pascal Gross has missed a number of games through injury. He's currently out again with a hamstring. He's by far and away their most creative player and was really, really excellent last season. So when you're fundamentally reliant on one player to be the guy who creates kind of de- defense splitting passes, cute through balls, there isn't really anyone else who can do that for them. Um, Eve Basuma is quite a good carrier of the ball. He's very, very energetic in midfield, but he's not as creative. Davy Proper is more about getting up and, and looking to, to hoover up shooting opportunities from sort of around the edge of the box, which he does well. Really, Brighton are not dissimilar to Newcastle. They're, they're looking to hit the ball long, particularly behind the opposition fullback. They score quite a lot from cutbacks. Players arriving quite late uh, to shoot. Um, they do score a reasonable amount from set pieces as well. It is direct. It's vertical. It's more about as Seb said, kind of creating this morass of, of players who press intelligently and well mm. in the central areas. Um, they, they're vertically quite compact. The striker will drop off really quite deep to assist in that, that pressing as well. Mm-hmm. But they, they, 
they're a team that you watch and you can see quite clearly what they're trying to do, um, partly because they're very well drilled in it and partly because they can't do much beyond that. Let me ask you this. I looked at their uh, Who Scored page before we started recording today to look at their most used formations. Mm. And uh, one of them, which is the four four one one, makes sense to me hearing what you're saying. The other one was the four three three, which isn't something that you always associate yeah, with it's defensive not, football. It's not really a four three three. So what is it? It's much more of a four five one. Um where the wide players, um Yakambash, Solly March, um whoever's playing out there, it's knockout sometimes, they will look to push up uh, in support of whoever's playing up front, whether it's Glenn Murray or Florian Adoni, but it, this is not a sort of four-three-three Man City style where those those players are playing very high and wide. They're they're looking to support the fullbacks to engage in the press and then to break forwards, and particularly with Jakambash to to kind of run inside if the fullback can overlap. And Martin Montoya has been quite good at that recently, uh, and and uh, Bernardo on the left. They will try and get up and, and provide the width where the the kind of the they're not really an inside forward, but they're basically a wide midfielder who will cut inside. Think sort of a a, a poor man's Riyad Mahrez for Leicester City. You know, I say I mean, this is going to sound like a bit of a, a nonsensical remark, but that role, that wide forward role, in a way, it's kind of like the almost auxiliary wing backs. It's bizarre because they're both expected to kind of tuck in in front of their fullbacks and then play over kind of 70 yards. So athletically, it must be a hell of a position to have to play. Yeah, that, I think auxiliary wingbacks are a really good way of describing it because, I mean, because there is a clear, and, I, and I'm not saying, for example, in a kind of classic 4-3-3 like City would play, yeah. for example, that there isn't a defensive responsibility on those players. There is. But they are defending, generally speaking, ahead of the halfway line. They're they're part of an initial press involving a striker. Whereas, you know, it it's particularly. I mean, I I watched um, I watched most of the the Chelsea game that you were referring to, and it's remarkable how deep Brighton as a whole team are defending. Um, and again, there is a bit of a difference there, say with Newcastle, where Newcastle will look to leave at least one player up, possibly two. But but Brighton are really, really coming back. And then, again, part of what they're seeking to do, I think, is by winning the ball back in those areas, if the opposition has come onto them quite significantly, there is space for those players to then carry the ball and run into. And you will see Brighton's wide players looking to run with the ball quite a lot before they then do anything with it. And that's partly because when they turn it over, there isn't anybody ahead of them. So they've got to carry the ball, otherwise they're going to lose it. They will play it back, and they, they play it around among themselves as a sort of back four, back five, with a defensive midfielder quite neatly. Mm. Um, but when they turn the ball over, it, it's got to be, the, the threat's got to be carried through running initially to allow anybody else in the team to get up with it. To go back to Chris Hewton, right, who clearly, you know, has his credentials, you can see it from the Brighton team, as you've just, just described. They're very drilled, they're very organised, they all know exactly what they're doing. One thing that always struck me about Chris when he was at Norwich was that he wasn't particularly charismatic, right? He doesn't seem to have, uh, certainly um, public-facing, we don't know what he's like in, 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 in the dressing room, but it's funny when we talk about these sorts of teams, who we see at least one every year in the, in, in the Premier League, where they sometimes know they're going out for a draw, or they know that, the, that maybe this is, you know, 
putting it politely that they're the best chances of staying up are re- reaching that 40 point mark not doing anything extraordinary maybe having one or two games where they get a win late on and that's good for the fans but it's a very pragmatic approach with a manager who doesn't appear to be on the sort of more charismatic end of the spectrum how do you maintain or manage the expectations of the players how do you get them to show up work incredibly hard every single weekend for what they know the end result of is something which is not everybody's kind of sort of sporting daddy. I I think it depends entirely on what you view as a club and therefore by implication as a manager as your measure of success. Yeah, but how do you get that across to the players? Because I think if you're talking to, you know, Dale Stevens or Shane Duffy and you're saying, look, Premier League safety is our aim, they're going to go, yeah, right, obviously, because they... I'm I'm not saying that they know their limitations. I think that would be really unfair and and I you know none of what I've said about Brighton is critical. You know that they are they are good at what they do uh, and they deserve great credit for that. But it's I just also not something think, that's considered. Yeah, but Joe, I think it comes that this is a key point in recruitment. What kind of player are you bringing into your club? Like are you bringing in someone who wants to use the football club as a means to further their own career? Or you bring in someone that wants to be part of the football club because they, they sound similar. They're very, very different things. What Hutton has, first and foremost, Hutton is just a thoroughly decent human being. I mean, uh, I don't know what he's like in private, but with the press, he is, he is uh, an amiable guy. He is someone that will give you honest answers to fair questions, who will talk about not quite the intricacies of the game, but will talk about the, the game in a certain amount of detail. Mm-hmm. So, some of the anecdotes which have come out of the club, like for instance, when. Um, Anthony Knockhart has had a very difficult uh, couple of years for a few reasons. Um, first and foremost, because his father passed away. When his father passed away, like the whole first team squad went to the funeral. And like that is something, okay, maybe that, that speaks to what kind of person Anthony Knockhart is and how his teammates react to him. But it's also, that is something which has been cultivated by a manager. And so while this is an age of like, you know, uh, big personalities and, charismas, uh, and charisma and sort of like high priests of tactical ideology, there is a more traditional model of manager uh, management whereby everyone just not gets on. That sounds ridiculous. It sounds a bit corny, but there is just a... Um, they like him. It's like an altruistic atmosphere. Um, and I think, you know, that's been, that's been key to what Brighton do because I, I think we're not being critical with how we discuss their, their, describe their style. We're, we're talking about a team which fundamentally is extremely hardworking and honest and diligent. And those are all really, you know, like desirable attributes. I, mean, mm-hmm. I dare say like, you know, for all the kind of the, the players that Fulham signed back in August, they could have done with a little bit of uh, those things as well. Like, especially now. Yeah. Um, and, and I nothing think... Nothing wrong with it at all. I think it's... I don't doubt that, that, that recruitment plays a significant part in that. But I also think if you look at someone like uh, Yakambash, who was the record signing, you know, he was... When he was at Alkmaar, he was the flair player. Is he the Iranian player? Yeah. He was at the World Cup, wasn't he? Yeah. He's been disappointing. Um, he has been disappointing as, as a creative player, definitely. Mm. But he's worked extremely hard in, in the games that I've seen. And this, to me, that's, you know, that's somebody who is the marquee signing of, of the last transfer or the, the summer transfer window. The guy who's going to come in and take some of the creative responsibility off Pascal Gross, who again is also a very hardworking player, and he's been prepared to knuckle down and do this. Should we call it an auxiliary wing back? Let's, oh God, no! Let's no. coin a term. I wish I never said that. No, <laughs> no it, it, it makes sense. And you know that to me, whether whether that's 
achieved through charisma, whether it's achieved through, a, you know, because there's a core of players at Brighton who've been there quite a long time and are kind of absolutely your quintessential hardened pros. And I, I'm guessing that new players come in and people like Duffy and Dunk and Murray will say, okay, you know, this is how we're going to do it. And, and you know, the manager's going to get you to work hard and that's what we have to do. And it's an acceptance of that, I think, speaks volumes about a player and, you know, how they're prepared to kind of dig in. Because, yeah, ev- I'm sure every player wants to be playing attractive football and wants to be ex- exciting and exhilarating and get the fans going and all the yeah. rest of it. But there, there has to be a recognition of what your level is. So this is a stepping stone then. In the ideal world for Brighton, Brighton's owner, Chris Hewton, if he, if he stays on for this process, We've seen this with other clubs. I'm thinking of West Brom. I'm thinking of Stoke, both of whom are no longer in the Premier League as they try to make the transition out of being incredibly well-drilled, defensive, uh, organised teams, right? So presumably the, uh, the ideal scenario for Brighton is remaining in the Premier League for long enough over a few seasons to bring in some money and then try to break the deadlock in terms of bringing players in because presumably you would have thought as well playing in this way while the benefits of it are maybe having a better chance of staying up, keeping well organised with the team and the players, and you know fostering that environment that you were just describing between Hutton and and the, and the playing squad, and it's what Fulham should have done. It's, it's what Fulham that. should have done, yep. but it also that would you would have thought make it harder when bringing in new players who might be able to break that deadlock because they're going to take one look at what Brighton are doing and maybe not want to. Yeah, I think people really it. underestimate how difficult this process is in a football yeah. club's lifespan because. Well, I don't like, know. I mean, it's it's. This is what I was going to use. Yeah. Use the example of West Brom and Stoke. Yeah. I think Both Stoke's whom, a very good example. Well, and tried to transition out of it. I mean, Stoke brought Mark Hughes in to do this very thing, and Stoke had, had become an incredibly well-established club in the Premier League, finishing in the top half of the table, playing the the Tony Pulis style of football. As soon as they tried to break from that, they uh, we well, you know they I, collapsed. Right. I, I would actually use for Brighton specifically. I'd use the QPR example of a club who who came up who did really, really well to survive initially, and they were skinning their teeth under Mark Hughes. And then they had that thing, which still, you see clubs make this mistake now. Well, like appointing Harry Redknapp. <laughs> no, well, it's still under no Hughes. No one's made that mistake recently. It was like you, you, you kind of, because you've survived one season, you think you are then entitled You're to in. go and finish 10th. It's weird. Yeah. It's like a, I remember QPR, okay, they, they, they had a very naive owner who was taken advantage of by a lot of different agents, but they also had a manager who thought, right, well, instead of just this sort of slow, gentle, sustainable, incremental progress, we want to try and make a quantum leap in the game. And so Brighton's um, great strength this season is, has not been to do that. Like it's kind of... Too much too soon. Yeah, you don't deviate from what's worked. You also accept that contextually, given Brighton's re- recent history, if you look back over the last 25 years, you think, right, so what are, you know, let's have five stable seasons in the Premier League whereby... Um, 17th is a roaring success. That is absolutely fair enough. And right. that, that is a, I mean, given where Brighton worked, that is a huge triumph. I prefer the Blackpool under Ian Holloway method, which <laughs> is come up and uh, be incredibly <laughs> entertaining. You run out of gas in be, February. Being the first, first showing on match of the day every single week. And, does, does, uh, yeah. I mean, there is a club that's made a quantum leap, uh, but it's done it with the three key elements to allow that to happen. And it's Wolves. Mm-hmm. And... Part of it is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Part of it is really savvy recruitment. I mean, Wolves have spent a lot, but none of that's really been wasted. And the third is an excellent manager. I'd add a, a fourth of 
of the, uh, the 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 usefulness of George Mendes in there as well. Of course, yeah, I think I think we still don't quite know what his role is. No, can, that's that's true. Um, but I think you know that you can you can have a lot of money and still acquire either not very good players or overrated players or overvalued players is a better way of putting it. Or you can recruit players that don't address your needs. And I would, I mean, Fulham is, I know we're not going to do a podcast on Fulham, but they're a really interesting case in point where during the summer, a lot of their transfer activity in isolation was actually praised, you know, and the analytics community said, uh, and this is not a dig at the analytics community, but they said, you know, there are some really smart transfers here. And on paper, they were really smart transfers. What none of them were were defenders, mm. which was a major issue. And it was also, it was almost kind of the wrong approach to analytics-based transfers, which was to say, let's snap up some guys that are doing really well, rather than thinking about how they're going to fit into something. Contrast that, say, with Brighton, where they've brought in Florian and Doné, who is... Very like if you play football manager, he's a defensive forward. Like he is the guy who will chase stuff down, who will battle for aerial balls, who will engage the press. He's not going to score a hatful of goals, but in terms of the way that Brighton play and in terms of getting reasonable value for money, he's a good acquisition. So it's not sexy, but it makes sense in terms of where they're going. It's a very interesting. Uh, oh, sorry, Seb. Go ahead. No, I was just. I mean, Alex raised an interesting point about Wolves. I mean, I, I think one of the because they they were in in similar situations. We're going to talk about Wolves next week. We are we? going to talk about Wolves next week. What, what I say there is also in terms of what you're selling. So let's let's look at it from specifically um, specifically uh, from from the point of view of of bringing players in. Wolves is aimed um, even from you know uh, even when they were back in the championship. Folsom have always talked about, well, we want to be a top six club. Brighton don't have those aims. Brighton have a kind of, they're not backed by the same kind of history that Wolves are. There isn't this kind of restoration project thing. What you're selling to a new player, with or without George Mendes, is different. Like you're, 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 you're playing at a, a smaller stadium, you're playing at a, a club who, um, I, I'm sure any supporter there who's over the age of 30 cannot believe that they're playing Premier League football. And I, I understand that completely. Wolves, you're kind of, you know, your your Raul Jimenez, your Jamatino, your Patricio, you know, Ruben Neves. They're they are they are sold on there's a, a slight marriage of convenience issue there. Um, but it's also kind of we want to be part of something. Whereas Brighton's That's what Leicester did when they came up as pretty well. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It, I mean it, it it achieves in a slightly different way, but pretty much, yeah. And um but Brighton is a it, it's a it's a I hate to use this word, it's a different project. Um, and so that impacts how you can grow. Which word? There's two. Project. Project. It's a it's a Brendan Rodgersism. Right. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if the and I'm I'm sure that something that you, you, people say like when they sign for PSG like something like sure. oh I believe in the project because well, yeah, like of course, of course launching you do. a new trainer like yeah like you know um, okay. the the I don't know if you call it acquisition hiring whatever of Dan Ashworth um, mm-hmm. is is an indication that if Brighton has a project, then maybe it's going to start to be more towards youth development, that there's going to be a kind of blueprint for transitioning players, which was financially... Was from England? From the FA. Yeah, the he, FA. Was, he was at the FA and he was the guy who, who really, along with Southgate, um, but, but Ashworth from a kind of technical and strategic point of view, Southgate from an implementation point of view, the designed this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ashworth authored the England DNA. England DNA. And, and, yeah. and there the, the kind of the really crucial element was to lay down a foundation as a, as a playing style, but also to ensure that there was progression from 
under 16 right the way through up to senior team, which is clearly delivering and clearly doing well. I mean, there are players who are sort of parked at under 21 level currently who maybe should get a chance, someone like um, Madison. But generally speaking, it's been a success. And, you know, that that is a much more indicative signing vis-a-vis aspirations in terms of what Brighton are saying about themselves by hiring him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the sort of person who probably could get a job at a, at a you know top half Premier League side, given his credentials, given the demonstrable success of what he implemented. And Brighton have snapped him up. And that, that says something more than spending 20 million on a player. I suppose it's, it's, it's the difference between saying, right, you're going to be our technical director and not Paul Mitchell, for instance. Like Paul Mitchell, you... Like you, you see that as someone that's not really necessarily invested in the native culture. Who is Paul Mitchell? Paul Mitchell was the technical director at Southampton and Spurs and is now, I think he's still at Leipzig. Um, absolute fraud. Um, sorry, I just like, <laughs> he came to my club and all he brought me was Clinton and G and, and, uh, and George, Kevin and Cody. Nice black box work. Excellent. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So if you're kind of, if you're appointing someone like that, you're looking to the outside for improvement, really, forgetting what Southampton were. When what academy. does black box work mean? So Mitchell's thing was that he, um, it was meant in the figurative sense that he was kind of, he had this, uh, this sort of broad oversight on, um, on research of sort of obscure players and as you're Southampton. It fan. was a, it was, it was the nickname given to a physical space that yeah. existed in the Southampton training ground where it was sort of where the analytics team were based. Right. And it you know, a little bit like the air conditioned rooms of Liverpool. It was it was just a way of describing a a process of player acquisition that basically. was <laughs> Yeah. That was based in in kind of a more modern way of thinking about player recruitment and 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 doing a lot of it based on stats. It's an odd name because why he says here with blank boxes, all that's all the names after yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds like this is the first thing to go. But I thought um, the point remains. So like Mitchell, that's that's the difference. Like um, Ashcroft is uh, Ashcroft. Uh, you know, you know the two people I always get confused. Dan Ashworth and Dan Ashcroft is in Nathan Barley. Yeah, but that's Joe does that. As He's well. the preacher I just can't man. Get, I just can't that's get why I said head. Ashworth really quite. I know, and I, I just, sort of fixed Joe. To say like this is what he's called. I'm sure I've put Dan Ashcroft into articles before. Dear it's had to be subbed out. <laughs> it's, I think he is the. He's the sugar rate columnist. What's the second best thing that you've ever read? Yeah, like I, I just can't, I can't get out of my head. Anyway, like it's an indication that you are, you are looking towards something a bit more organic yeah. and ultimately over the long term a bit more healthy. And his, you know, his his player recruitment in inverted commas was was predicated on, you know, it wasn't about money. It was about talent identification, mm-hmm. wherever that was from. And I think that's a really useful lesson for somebody who's involved in that sort of role, where it's not about, you know, here's 100 million or here's 50 million, go and find me some good young players. It's you're, you're thinking, I think if, if it's phrased in those terms and, you know, people talk about receiving a war chest and, and whatnot, that the the thinking then becomes driven by the financial side of things, right? Who can we get for X amount of money? If you're coming out of an international setup, it's much more about where can we find these players that particularly in the sort of under 21s, under 18s, whatever, where can we find these guys who are under the radar, who are performing well? And then we'll think about, you know, they, they don't have to think about the financial side if it's at a club they do, but it's a different way of looking at it. 
you're you're going quality first and then working out whether it's feasible rather than thinking let's spend 30 million on a striker who can we get for that well we're talking obviously we're talking about recruitment we, we began this by discussing what brighton should or shouldn't do or what fulham should or shouldn't have done when they came up i was as i said earlier i was at norwich of the weekend and it's it's an interesting topic of conversation because it's one that one that the promoted fans of potentially promoted clubs in the championship are, are having now and i saw you know on um, i was looking on on twitter because uh, um, Buendia got sent off at Carrow Road and I couldn't really see the challenge. There was one that happened just before it and I wasn't paying attention. Um, and there was a big kerfuffle, red card came out. I couldn't even work out who'd been sent off. So I was looking on Twitter after the game to see, see what the challenge was. Um, it was a red card. But also, uh, people, I saw two very contradictory tweets directly after one another. The first one said that, you know, uh, this is a great team and Norwich need to spend a little bit of money when they get promoted to add to it in certain key areas, right? Maybe if they lose players, that's understandable, but if they don't, you know. The second tweet said Norwich need to not make the same mistake that all the other clubs do, which is uh, ruining the, you know, there's, in fact, um, Darren Huckabee said before the game that he, he credits James Madison leaving the club being the main thing that's fostered the title campaign this season because they're, they're a team in a way that they weren't last year. They played everything through James Madison last year, and they don't. The point being, the second tweet was saying, don't break the, the sort of team cohesion, the team spirit that you've got. And they're both very compelling arguments. And obviously, for what, what, Brighton, what Brighton did coming up, maybe that made sense for them. What we, QPR, as you brought well, up, Bournemouth is a different example. Came up as well. Bournemouth as well. Yeah. But what, what's the right answer? I mean, presumably, it's just specific to the club, right? No, I, I don't necessarily think it is. I mean, I, I think, like, my theory with transfers is always that I don't care how clever your recruiting staff is. I don't, you know, no matter how many gurus a club has, and we've seen this, the kind of the rise of the Mitchell, Steve Walsh character, Damien Camoli a bit earlier, like transfers really, they're always just a flip of the coin because there's all manner of things which can and can't work. And, you know, uh, I, I'm sure members of the analytics community will disagree, but the real life kind of, a transfer is completed. You can identify, a, a, you know, a talented footballer. When he comes into the club, the the means which uh, the the kind of reasons for a success and failure are variables. You just cannot anticipate that. And so, as a newly promoted club, if you come up and you um, not necessarily squander everything that's worked for you, but if you put it in jeopardy, it's a very it's a very bold way forward. And I I can't. Alex got his hand up. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to but carry he, on talking until your but, points finished. But he 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 put up his his hand with with urgency. It was, was like no a, I need to make a point right now. No, if he put, just for future reference, if he puts his hand up, it's for me to acknowledge not to not to you're, start talking when you finish. Uh, okay, okay. you're the Dimbleby. Yeah. Basically. Otherwise, what I just say is Seb, shut up. I got to say something. <laughs> That's the whole point of it being a silent signal. I just. I'm distrustful of transfers. I, I, I think people are. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. So I'm just putting my hand up this to distract This doesn't work quite as well now that we don't do it on video. Mm. It's just us talking, it's us laughing about in-jokes that people can't see. That's fine. I think, it, 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 look, it, it also it depends on the, the amounts of money being spent. I just think that kind of, there's a mentality now whereby people substitute progress for transfers. They think the two are, are mm -hmm. intertwined. And I think that's a fallacy. That's definitely true. And it's like there, there, are, there are far more examples of clubs making mistakes by spending too much money than there are of clubs spending not enough money, really. Alexis Sanchez. There you go. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, I think in terms of what the analytics community might say, no. and it, an inference based on having spoken to some of them along these lines, that analytics does not 
profess to guarantee sensible transfers. I think no, no, no intelligent member of the analytics community would say that. What they'd say is that it, it is indicative of a potential for success that, that is more grounded in fact and previous performance than not. And also that it's a way of finding players who might otherwise have been overlooked. Rather than saying, you know, because someone's done well on, because I think you're right, you know, it's, it's about, it's about all of these intangible things as well. You know, it's about group dynamics. It's about relationship with the manager. It's about whether, you know, it, it could be as simple as a very good player who has been brought in by a head of recruitment who has a personal antipathy to the manager and the manager takes against this player because of that. You know, there are all kinds of permutations that, that may or may not go to affect it. I think, I think where, where I would kind of, I, I, where I'd add something is, because I, I remember you, you said earlier, you talked about kind of um, the reaction to some of Fulham's transfer business over the summer. And for me, I saw some of that too. And for me, it was like, it kind of missed the point of what made Fulham, or what got Fulham promoted in the first place. If you, if you looked, not this season, but if you looked back last season, I kind of the association with Fulham, okay, Sessegnon, Kearney, but, like they were fundamentally a really well-coached, cohesive football team. They've just functioned really well. And so any transfer, by definition, is a threat to that. So it's kind of strange to see like the identity of some of these players who come in and say, well, yes, he, he has a, you know, he's productive in this way and this way and this way. I was like, well, it's kind of not the point. It's kind of you're bringing in like a reclamation pro, uh, yeah. um, project like Vieta or, or someone who is past his best, like Schurler. You know, these are... I don't know. I, I had I fundamentally. I, I found it. I found it very naive. I, I and quite possibly it was. I, I mean, I think it's. Yeah. It, I think the the transfer business as a whole that Fulham conducted has been proved to be naive by the results that have been achieved. How much of that is down to transfers? How much down to management? How much down to other things? Is hard to say. But I think in terms of of what you're saying, that, that there certainly are. If a club is promoted from the championship, the championship definitively is less good than the Premier League. And so there will always be a case at least to look for an improvement in certain areas. I, I think that goes without saying. That doesn't mean that you have to buy in order to, you have to spend lots of money in order to have to do that, or you, or you should be looking to improve every area of your team. I think that is naive. And I think there's a lot to be said for cohesiveness. There's there was a piece in the Times today in the game section. Uh, Gab Marcotti wrote about Bayern, and you know Bayern are kind of coming back into the Bundesliga title now. Their their dip was sort of overstated as it goes anyway. Yeah, yeah. But one of the points that he was making is that actually in the last, really the last two or three seasons, they've barely spent any money at all. Partly because Gnabry had a buyout clause and uh, Goretzka came as a yeah, free, yeah. but. What he was saying there is, you know, look, there's there's still a core of players there who are very good. But in terms of delivering value, particularly in proportion to wages, because their wage bill is huge, um, they aren't quite there. And also, this is a squad that has been together for a long time. And you can't deny that people like Mats Hummels, Jerome Bertang were fantastic players at their peak. But this is clearly a squad that needs freshening up. Mm-hmm. And well, also, it's to be said that they're, this is a bit cynical, but one of their main transfer tactics 
is to just buy the other best players in the Bundesliga and weaken weaken the surrounding teams. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, we're seeing that now with Kai Havertz. So the room, the rumors are that he's going to go. to Sure, Bayern. but then they bought Benjamin Pavard from Stuttgart for a lot of money, and Stuttgart are by no means a threat to them. Sure, sure, sure. It's a weird acquisition, by the way, because you know Pavard mostly. Well, I mean, he played as a right back during the World Cup very effectively, mm. but he's not going to displace Kimmich unless Kimmich does a Philip Lahm and plays in mm. central midfield, which he might well do. But it's what they need is they need to, and this is the kind of the general point, is sometimes a, a team, even when it's achieving, it's already kind of past its peak or it's past the point where cohesion is its main benefit and it does need freshening up. I'm going to David, David Dimbleby us because we haven't talked about Brighton for about 10 minutes and okay, also we're 45 minutes well, in and we have By inference we've talked no, about no, of Brighton. Course, but, I mean, but we haven't mentioned, um, it's my fault I started us off on the Norwich curve but uh, we haven't mentioned uh, their, their FA Cup run, <laughs> we haven't talked about the, the Man City game yet. Um, did you watch this Eb? Yeah, would I you mean, talk? Would you talk? I mean, I heard that it was very close. I thought they did much better than I um, expected them to. Um, well, I say it's really hard to get past. Okay, so they um, they got beyond Millwall on penalties, obviously, and because of that ridiculous goalkeeping error at the Den, I think kind of it's been quite negative because obviously and quite understandably, as soon as Chris Hutton heard that they were facing Man City, the whole country saw his reaction to that. Is you know. And I, I think there's a different conversation to be had about Manchester City and, you know, what, what they mean and, and their strengths mean in relation to English football. Um, it's very good. I, I, think it's, it's, um, I think it's very healthy as well because often, you know, the line that gets trotted out in this situation is, well, well we can't possibly have a cut run because we're fighting against relegation. Yeah. Again, another fallacy. That's a, that's a Mike Ashleyism. You actually nonsense. see it fairly regularly, don't you? you like do. Teams down towards the relegation zone getting far in the, far yeah, in but the cup also, run. like, one of the psychological, like, psychological benefits is it gives players a day off from the grind. Mm. Like, it gives them something, instead of just slogging 1-0 wins over yeah. Cardiff, it's like kind of, right, we're going to Wembley and we're playing, playing in front of all these people. Go out and have fun. And we get to have a swing at Manchester City yeah. on a kind of, on a, on a free hit basis. Um, no consequences. And I, I thought they, they did very well. Um, well, the way in which they, they lost will have done well for their confidence, presumably. Absolutely, absolutely. To only lose, like I expect Holland to lose by a far greater margin than Brian did on Saturday. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, good for them. Um, I don't, it's very hard to price what the long-term benefit of that is, but I think, you know, being exposed to that kind of occasion, performing on a relatively big stage um, and contesting well with a group of extremely well-played um, and highly celebrated players is, it can't hurt anybody I don't think had they had they had they, had they got beaten 5 or 6 nil, different story but the way it turned out it can only be a benefit one of the other things we do or we try to do on the podcast is uh, talk a little bit about the history of the clubs and about uh, the ownership of, of the clubs as well um, Seb you've been reading up and you you already knew as well mm. didn't you Talk to me a little bit. You, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about the idea that if you're a Brighton fan over 30, you're going to find the, the advent of playing in the Premier League now absurd anyway. Um, can you explain to me uh, why that is the case? Um, and also tell me a little bit about Brighton's owner. So I think this goes back to kind of, it obviously goes back to the 90s. I remember I'm about to turn 35. And so when I was growing up, Brighton were probably the definitive basket case club. They weren't a standing joke because nothing that was happening there was particularly funny, but it was kind of, when you thought of Brighton, that's dysfunction. Um, so in 1990, um, like a lot of football league clubs at the time, uh, they were in financial difficulty um, and they were acquired by a, um, by a guy called Bill Archer who, who had made his money in DIY. 
done done very well. Um, the way he actually um, took over the club, he, he didn't use his own money. Uh, he used a, a loan uh, leveraged against um, Brighton's then home, which was the Goldstone Ground. An LBO, like the Glazers at United. A kind of a low-rent version of that, yeah. really, yeah. Um, obviously with far fewer assets. Um, and he, by 1995, I think 1995, um, it leaked out that he, he, uh, he was selling the Goldstone Ground. In, that, in the kind of the, the time between that, what he'd done is um, he had, uh, well, there's a, this is a contested history. So supporters will tell you that uh, under his ownership, him and his sort of his uh, group of, of cronies had rewritten um, the club's constitution. Like one of the standard clauses in any, any, any club's constitution is that in the event the club fails, um, shareholders can't benefit from that financially. And that clause had, had vanished from Brighton's constitution. <laughs> The club said uh, the, uh, the the ownership said uh, it's uh, an oversight. Mm, don't that's know about that's that. quite a specific oversight. Yeah. Isn't it? So anyway, the um, the Golden Ground was sold for I think somewhere between seven and eight million, which is crazy. You know, looking back on it now, um, and the big problem was that sort of no contingency was made uh, for where to play next. Bill Archer has always maintained that um, that uh, uh, it was in the, it was the only a means to, to save the club with their mounting debts, the only way to service it, to, to, to guarantee their survival. I'm not entirely sure that's true. The long and the short of it is that, um, so Brighton, once the, once the ground was sold um, to a property company um, and was then flipped a year later for three times as much money, which is a nasty thing in the tale, um, they loaned back the ground for another year. Um, they survived relegation out of the football league with a on the last day. They I think they they drew with Hereford um, in 1997, the last day of the season there to survive. Um, but then, having left the Goldstone Ground, they had to play at Gillingham for two years. Um, I think Gillingham is I, I think it's like 80 miles, 70 miles from from Brighton. That's quite a commute for a home game. They did two years there. Um, they um nineteen ninety seven they were um they were they were bought out by a, a guy called Dick Knight, who was a, a really flamboyant local businessman, like one of those guys that sort of um you know, a real force for good in the kind of the psychological sense. He had a lot of imagination, a lot of you know, he spoke with a lot of a lot of charisma too. Um but um was sort of his his end game was to to move the club back to um a permanent stadium in Brighton. Um, the site that they'd identified was actually an area of outstanding national beauty. Um, if you go there now, if you go to the MX now, you can see for yourself, it's, it's, it's quite unlike a lot of other football grounds in the sense that you get there and there's this very modern, very new stadium, but it's also, it's, it's set in these beautiful hills. It really is a stunning place. Um, but it was very difficult and it went through a whole load of sort of um, planning issues. Uh, John Prescott got involved um, in, in the sort of the planning application. The, the MP John Prescott. The MP John Prescott. The... Um, the club actually, um, there was a, during that kind of um, drive towards get, getting planning permission, the club actually released a, um, a, a single that went into the top 40. Uh, it, 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 how did it go, Seb? It went well because... Uh, no, I mean, how did no, the tune go? The I, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but it was, it was I, think, I think it was written by a guy called Attila the Stockbroker, who was a very famous sort of... Um, I've heard of Attila the Stockbroker. Yeah, okay, so basically, anyone, anyone who's not a Brian fan who's listening, um, about a year ago, I, I subbed a, a really good piece for 442 by Chris Flanagan, um, which in, it, ha, it contains interviews, all these little people, that, not little people, very significant people, but all these sort of um, unheard of people who rallied around the club's cause and got involved in the kind of 
you know, direct action sense. Um, anyway. Including Attila the stockbroker. Including Attila the stockbroker. He's, he's quite a well-known guy who, who sort of, at one point when they were at Gillingham, I think he was, he was, he, he was their, their PA guy during games and he would, he would play like um, Anakin in the UK by the Sex Pistols and he got banned from doing that. It's a, it, read Chris's article. It's a fantastic story. Um, so the playing permission issue rumbles on and obviously playing at Gilliam is not ideal. So Brighton move um, back to Brighton, but to an athletic stadium, the Withdean, which um, like people who are slightly older remember this. Like whenever you see highlights of Brighton games, you see someone score a goal and then you'd see them run off behind the goal towards where the fans would be and they would just keep running because it was that far away from everything. It's um, a strange place set in what looked like a forest and, you know, to, to, to up the capacity, they had to bring in like um, sort of the, the stands they use for golf tournaments. You know, when, when a, like a player is teeing off at the Ryder Cup, yeah. you've got all the people. So they use seats like that that were right. just stacked around the sides. Um, a very, very strange place, but they did very well. Uh, it, it's kind of, it was, it was sort of the beginning of their ascension to where they are now. They, I think they won a promotion. Bobby Zamora was playing down there. Gus Poyet was, although left in less than ideal circumstances, um, did very well briefly there. Um, and they, they came to the Amex in 2011. Um, and they, part of that is, was dependent on a guy called Tony Bloom, who is now their, um, their chairman. An interesting person because he's quite private and not an awful lot is known about what he does for a living, but he's sort of got a lot of property interests. He's one of the, the world's best poker players I read last night. Um, right. Fantastic. He's a, uh, he's a very successful professional gambler too. He owns a, not owns because the nature of the company is a little bit um, nebulous, but he um, has a sort of a, a betting consultancy, um, which kind of advises people on, you know, on how to identify mar- um, value in betting markets and stuff. I don't, I don't really understand betting well enough to, to explain this, but yeah, he's a, he's a very successful guy, very quiet guy. If you go onto YouTube, you can find footage of him uh, getting the train back from away games with fans and stuff. And he, um, he, uh, he secured the funding to help the, uh, to, 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 to construct what is now the Amex Stadium. Um, it's a, honestly, I, I, I haven't been this season. I went, um, I went last season as a fan, actually, to watch the Tottenham game. And um, it's a great ground. Brighton's a great town, actually. It's, it's, um, it's getting a little bit tired. Could do with a, a lick of paint here and there. Um, but on a, when, you're, when you're down by the shore, I remember um, I stayed the night there and I, I went, down the next, uh, went home the next morning. You wake up there with the sun shining over that beachfront. It's a beautiful place. See, I don't like it, no? but the reason is not because Brighton isn't a lovely place. It's okay. because uh, I spent some of my childhood in Colwyn Bay. Oh, so you've got bad memories associated. Uh, like yeah, a, I'm, not a, I'm not a seafront fan. I love fish and chips, but the sound of seagulls makes me think of my mother. Okay, well, the sound of seagulls doesn't make me think of my mother, but um, I don't, I'm not fond of seagulls. They're kind of threatening. Mm. Um, no, I just don't like the seafront. I think it's... Uh, I don't understand. This is not about Brighton, but you know when you look at the sea yeah. and people go, oh. Do you know what, like, I just you know, go, when what, the sun's what? shining and it's, it's glistening on the waves and it's, it's just, it's the, the air is fresh. You're, you live in London, surely you... I don't like water. You know, I, yeah, I, you I went to Niagara Falls yeah, and everyone, oh, everyone said, if you don't like whoa. Water. And I yeah. said, uh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not afraid of water. Just, I just don't like it. You just don't rate I it. I just don't care. And everyone said, this is the most amazing thing. Went in the Maid of the Mist, the, the boat that yeah, goes out yeah, you know, yeah, beneath yeah. The, uh, the falls. And I just looked and said, oh, this is one of the seven wonders of the world. I felt nothing. <laughs> Why are you telling us this? I, think, I can't remember. Oh, because of Brighton. Yeah. I, 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 okay, fine. I like, I like theme parks, though. 
as a as a ground. What I'm, relevance does that have? They, I'm, 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 on the I'm, Brighton, no, on Brighton I'm, I'm seafront, gonna, there, there is a, there's a couple of old rides. You know, and you have the sound of the the, the sound of the seaside is what I'm just going. You know, I like the I like the promenade vibe. I just don't like the sea. But that's what I sand. go for. Like I'm not I'm not I'm I'm not like squeezing myself into a wetsuit and going surfing. I'm walking along the on the, on the beachfront too. Not even in the sand. Like just walk along it. Yeah, don't go in the sand. No, of course not. But I mean, it's objectively a nice place. Your, your dislike you of water. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, I, the reason I'm telling you that is because I'm trying to make it very clear that, that for Brighton fans listening, I'm not shitting on Brighton as a place. I'm subjectively explaining why I dislike it. Towns. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's why I tied in the other stuff. I understand what there. you're saying. I'm just really why? unclear as to why you're saying it. Because, you know, I felt compelled to. Anyway, 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 mm. anyway. Great place to visit. If you get the chance, ah! like, to, is that your best seagull? Yeah, it's well, not my best. That's pretty good. That wasn't, that wasn't bad. If you, get the, if you get the chance to visit the Amex, do. It's a, um, uh, the travel's a little bit, or getting out of the ground's a bit tricky, especially when the, the ground's full to capacity, because it's a bit, sort of, to get there, you have to take a train back into town, um, and that can be quite a slow exit. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, great place to watch football. And okay. um, as a, it's amazing, because I, I, it's the first time I'd been, and obviously I'd grown up with the stories of the Goldstone Ground, and I could obviously remember what the Withdean was, although I never went there. I saw it on TV, and and it's it's a it, 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 it's a tremendous symptom of progress, a symbol of progress. It's a the, the, and this ties back to what we're saying about like you know survive one season, I survive five because Brighton have come the, the distance they've covered. Like I mean, it's I'd say it's more impressive than the stories about you know Swansea at the Vetchfield or. You know, or uh, or even Bournemouth. You know, uh, you know, collecting in charity buckets before games to survive mm. that kind of stuff. Like the odds, Bournemouth, um, Brighton have faced are amazing, and the people, like the sort of the um, the Bill Archer story is by today's standards, he's kind of a low rent villain mm-hmm. compared to kind of people seeking soft power and, and and stuff like that. But I think um, you know, to 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 evade the clutches of of someone that seemed to have no that, that didn't not seem to have their club's interests at heart and and prosper is a it's kind of story that football should celebrate mm. a little bit more, I think. Alex, if you're if you're Chris Hutton uh, and you're Brighton, you're going into the summer. You uh, excuse me. You are. Uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because I want to bring it back slightly to recruitment to finish on. Um, what are you? What are you doing? I think I think the first thing that any club would need to do is sit down and think about what their overall strategic goal is, and that's clearly going to be a conversation between. Uh, Hewton, Ashworth, possibly the chairman. I, I, I think chairmen have varying degrees of input into those sorts of conversations. But I, I definitely, I think, off the back of maybe if they'd had a more successful league season, it would be a harder conversation to have because there would be more options, um, irrespective of the cup run, which is to be celebrated. But you know they're still scrapping around a little bit, so. I would suggest it's about consolidation. Um, it's about looking for a similar profile of player, somebody who's very hardworking, somebody who will buy in to the system. Um, developing some of the... Acqu- I mean, you know, Yves Basuma uh, is still only 22. Um, I think he's a good player. I think he's a good player. Um, I think I, I like Bernardo as well. Yeah, I, uh, Bernardo I think is excellent. Yeah. And Bernardo is... Uh, he's more versatile than has been shown. He's been played as a left back, but he certainly he played at Leipzig as a, a defensive midfielder as well. So, you know, give those guys a bit of time to bed in. Um, I personally wouldn't look to 
have the same level of transfer business this summer as last summer. I don't think you need to bring in as many players. Um, there's got to be a replacement for Glenn Murray at some point. And maybe if I were Brighton, that's where I would... Personally, if I were Brighton, what I'd do is I'd spend reasonably big on a young striking prospect, possibly an English one who's not getting game time elsewhere, um, and kind of ease them into things and probably not tinker with the squad too much. Tammy Otherwise, Abraham. Someone like Tammy Abraham. Yes, absolutely. Lovely. Lovely. Uh, would either of you like to say anything else about Brighton before we finish? No, not really. No, no, I think we've, we've covered all our bases. Hmm. I feel like that's a we've good not summary talked, of Brighton. We've not talked anyway. about Clough. Not what we just talked about, but Taylor, the, uh, what but you said there. Actually, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. Like, if you, if you, if you haven't, um, and there's lots of ways to do this, I, I'd recommend um, uh, Jonathan Wilson's biography of Clough. Read about Clough's time at, uh, at Brighton for, for the very definition of kind of phoning something in. As a <laughs> That's Clough, not Wilson. <laughs> it's worth pointing Wilson out. Wilson phones nothing in. Clough, on that occasion, very much did. But it's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, you know, there's, um, I forget the name of it. Uh, there's a, a book specifically about that period. There is, which and I can't, it, it's called uh, Bloody Southerners. Something like something that. Like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but that, that's, and I mentioned this very briefly, that's a good example of a club being ambitious in a way that just doesn't make any sense. And it's, uh, it's, it's not a massively relevant part of Brighton's history, but it does afford a very nice contrast to the kind of ways that they're, um, they're being ambitious now, which are much more sensible. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, well, uh, thank you to everyone for listening. A couple of things to mention. The first is that uh, at the end of last week, we teamed up with The Blizzard, which is, we mentioned Jonathan Wilson there. Jonathan Wilson is the editor of The Blizzard. It's a, a, a published quarterly a football magazine. It's more of a book, really. Every time it comes out, stacked, stacked to the uh, to the ceiling with um, long form uh, stories and journalism about football. It's really lovely, and we we um, adapted one of those stories into a video. It was about the the life of uh, Type Erdogan, who is the Turkish Prime Minister, um, President, the Turkish President. He was the Prime Minister, and now he's the President. Yeah. Uh, so do go and watch that because it was a lot of fun. Um, and there'll be more of those things. And there was something else I was going to say. I'm like, oh, yes, it's that we'll be doing Wolves next week. So tune back in for that. Uh, lots of stuff to say about Wolves. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, Alex and Seb, thank you. Thank you, Seb. Thank you, Joe. Bye now. Bye. Bye.